millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to another episode of History Hacks Sharpshooters with me, the baby-faced Napoleon nerd, Zach White, and everyone's favorite tweed-clad Napoleonic expert, Marcus Cribb. Marcus, how are you doing? I'm very well. I was wondering what you were going to say there. I thought you were going to say bony bashing. Uh, but yeah, no, no tweed right now, though I, I think you're in a stunning pair of chinos uh, there, chap. No, we're very well. Uh, we've had an interesting couple of weeks since we were last on here. Uh, there's lots of sharp news with the more details of the latest book coming out and uh, a reenactor trying to in- repel the French off the Isle of Jersey with a musket, which was... Uh, Relatively amusing slash irresponsible, depending where you stand. But I thought it was relatively funny. I uh, I had a little chuckle. I, I'm not going to lie. See, I thought at one point that, you know, you were going to be sent because you're a reservist, as people probably know, because you bang on about it often enough, as is your way. Um, I thought you were going to potentially be sent to, you know, like Guernsey or something as, you know, a tactical reserve to defend the Channel Islands. And then I realised that this was actually quite a bad idea, because if the army sent you to the Channel Islands, you'd be rubbish on sentry duty because you'd just be looking at the Martello Towers the whole time. Yeah, that's right. And I'd be probably trying to load the, the cannon and go, yeah, yeah, these would be good. Uh, I'd be really distracted. It'd be the worst place to send me. We've got World War II uh, defences there, Napoleonic, Revolutionary Wars, and just about everything in between. The, the, the history of the Channel Islands is fascinating and it's still got a serving uh, defence unit down there, the, the Jersey Militia, part of the Royal Monmouthshire, Royal Engineers, and so the history goes on. But one chap uh, taking the defence of the Channel Islands into his own hands by bite, tap, spit, pour, fire, uh, sharp star. You never spit a ball down a musket, but that's the thing for another time. Um, yeah, it was tongue in cheek. Let's just uh, put it at that. And uh, sometimes in serious life, um, a little bit of humour goes a long way. Absolutely. And we should just emphasise in case anybody's concerned, there wasn't a bullet in the musket. And even if you did try and fire to somebody, who's a kilometre out at sea, the musket doesn't have the range, so they would never have hit them anyway. So you might as well have thrown a rock at them for all the danger that you were going to inflict upon them. And I think there's an, I think there's a daily or at least a weekly cannon firing uh, from one of the forts there. Uh, so you could ro- maybe wrap it up as a reenactment. There's certainly a battle of Jersey, uh, so we could have a nice little reenactment event and just invite the friendship on. And we're all friends now. For now, anyway. Shall we talk about times when we weren't friendly with the French then? Because that's kind of what we're here to do. Yeah, which is a lot of our period in our bag. It makes it quite difficult to be friends with the French when 
uh, I was reading the other day about the, the Portuguese sawing a, a French officer in half. I presume, I presume alive. They never actually stipulate, but I'm assuming they held him down alive. And then the, the monks by the side of the road who were mutilated and murdered. It, it does feel slightly less friendly than, uh, than the jollities that we had over fish. This, this is true. Although we talk about jollities, but uh, if people have seen the cartoon for today's episode... They might have noticed that Marcus and I might not be on the best of terms by the end of this. And I was thinking we should probably subtitle this The Breaking Up of the Bromance, because today we're talking about the 95th Rifles, a topic which I'm... um, Go on, my boys. I'm not necessarily in tune with Marcus on. Um, And I think I got a little bit of stick online when uh, I offered the suggestion that despite what everybody sees in Sharp, the 95th Rifles might not have been the gods that everybody likes to portray them as. Yeah, I mean, there's gods and then there's demigods, aren't there? I mean, Alexander um, the Great, you know, thought he was descended from gods. Hercules, demigod. So that's the kind of level we're at, isn't it, Shirley? So you're now trying to say that the 95th Rifles folks were demigods. If they were demigods, where does that leave Wellington in your book? This concerns me deeply. <laughs> well we got accused of starting a new religion uh over the last couple of weeks didn't we so um by one of napoleon's biggest fans uh, and by using sense of humor i think they had a sense of humor failure and we were accused of starting the church of wellington and uh, it true. sounded quite a lot of fun i think we were gonna um burn some biographies of napoleon and drink very good wine uh, which sounds like a good religion in my book i'll do that every sunday sounds good well let's actually do some history shall we uh, before oh, everybody okay. stops listening um so oh, yes you're right we are going to do the 95th rifles the sharp's own regiment that green coat that he wears so proudly uh, and refuses to take off even when he becomes part of the south essex regiment uh, and we're going to look at them a little bit of their history and like you said on a serious note we're going to see how they're portrayed on screen in the books is that accurate yes and let me let me set my stool out from the beginning, okay? I've got no issue, actually, with the gents who served with the 95th Rifles. I think they exhibited stunning bravery. They were an utterly dependable unit. They absolutely deserve an incredible reputation that they have. My issue is twofold. One, people watch Sharp and assume that everything that you see in Sharp is an exact replication of what the 95th were doing in the Peninsula War. At no point in this conflict did we have any unit which was employed in an SAS-style operation to go into the hills and hit and do whatever secret, almost MI5, MI6-esque operation Wellington required, come home, um, flirt outrageously with a pretty lady, and, and then go to bed happy. That was not the 95th role. People think that it was. My other issue is that if you want to sit the 95th on the pedestal, which I absolutely understand and would endorse to a large extent, then actually when you look at the service record of other units, there is nothing to suggest that any of those gents are any less worthy of being on exactly the same pedestal. And my beef is that we put the 95th front and centre and everybody throws praise at them. And in the process, we completely forget about the 99% of the army that was actually every bit as worthy. 
It is interesting. Um, so I must display my colours. My colours are quite dark green. So yes, as Zach said, I am uh, a reservist and very proudly uh, yeoman and currently in the Royal Artillery, uh, previously in the Armoured Corps, but very proud to be a gunner. But also in my very limited free time, I am a reenactor. I was the 3rd Battalion, the 95th. And so slight bias there. Uh, and yeah, the 3rd Battalion, the 95th, there's, there's three battalions of them and uh, another little unit over the side in, in America. But if anyone wants to go to 95thrifles.com and uh, click join us, you can come along. And uh, basically we are all sharp fans and uh, we're the loudest singers around the campfire and some of the hardest drinkers uh, certainly in the camp. And uh, the history sometimes comes a little bit secondary because we are having so much fun. Um, so uh, I do have a real soft spot for the 95th and I'm going to defend them as much as I can today within the bounds of history. I will keep you honest, don't worry. Although straight away we probably tapped into something that people didn't even realise, which is that there are three battalions of the 95th. It's not even just one battalion, as most units in the British Army at this period were either one battalion or two battalion units. And we see a lot of second battalions, which ordinarily in times of peace wouldn't have either existed or they would have existed as home recruitment uh, units to then send reinforcements out to um, the first battalions that are on deployment. The 95th is quite unique in that it has three battalions. Uh, there's the, four, the first regiment, I believe, has four battalions. Um, you've got a couple of others where there are multiple um, multiple battalion regiments, the 60th springs to mind uh, like that. But yeah. The 60th was the largest by the end of the conflict uh, who had a rifle battalion, the 5th 60th, uh, which we see in Sharp um, as Fredrickson's men, but also very infamous in the peninsula because they detach their companies to different brigades. So they're everywhere and definitely don't get enough credit. In fact, whilst we're mentioning them, I must mention Rob Griffith's excellent book, uh, Rifleman, and as a as a proud ninety uh, fifth rifles, uh, the sixtieth are our arrivals and and worthy so because they are very good. And uh, I'm reading that book. I didn't want it to be um, good, and it is excellently written. Rob's really really done his research. He's a thoroughly nice guy, and that book is just one of the outstanding books of I think last year. Um, the other years have started to merge. It might have been 2019, to be honest. Um, so, yeah, Rifleman, uh, the history of the 5th 60th, uh, is brilliant. And you start to get a real flavour of these uh, these rogues as he portrays them, of these Germans, professional soldiers that are the first ones onto the field, but the last ones off, not because they're always fighting, but because they're plundering the dead Frenchmen. And I think it just it's a brilliant character that he portrays uh, in real life, and he's really got into the archives and the diaries and learned a lot from them. Um, but that's the 60th, and as they are mostly, not all German, I think we're going to do a separate episode on foreign units within the British Army another time. Uh, as Zach said, you know, the 95th Rifles, three battalions of them, you will rarely see that, especially in Sharp, uh, who they belong to. Uh, so they're a relatively large unit, which is part of the reason um, that we get so much of them, both in history books but then this huge bias that since Sharp has come out, that they seem to appear everywhere. And you start to basically pay uh, Sharp and 95th Rifle bingo. And when you find paintings of battles, you start to point out and spot the men in the green jackets uh, very quickly. Yeah, you're absolutely right on, on all of those counts. Um, and I'm glad that you mentioned Rob's book, because if you weren't going to, then I absolutely was. It's, it's fantastic. I think it was 2019 that it came out. Uh, you can get it at hellion.co.uk. No, we're not getting paid for advertising that one. Um, but yeah, fantastic book. Paints a really vivid picture of 
a unit that people don't associate with the rifles, but were one of a number of units that were given the weapon that we associate with the 95th, the Baker rifle. Before we talk mm. about the rifle itself, though, as a weapon, why don't we rewind a little bit and talk about the origins of light infantry doctrine? Because the yeah, whole point about go, the 95th, as Julie Andrews says, go all the way back to the start. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good place to start the start, isn't it? So people perhaps perceive the 95th as the start of light infantry tactics. Now, you and I both know that that's not the case. Actually, there is a much longer history of light infantry doctrine, not least the fact that you have within every battalion something called a light company. Now, the light companies are skirmishers. They're designed to go forward with their weapons and they are the sharpshooters. That's pun is entirely intended to pick off the officers, to whittle down uh, the enemy's ability to command effectively so that when the main formation hits the main line, actually they are much less effective as a cohesive fighting force. But that has a much longer doctrine. Yeah, so this mostly, not completely, comes around because of the American uh, Revolution, the American Revolutionary War, American War of Independence, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but that's where a lot of the British doctrine came out, uh, both working with uh, Germans within the British Army and uh, finding their kind of ground in the woodlands. Rather than traipsing across this too much, I'm just going to point out that I did an episode with Robbie McNiven, uh, Andrew Dorman and Josh Provan on the origins of the British Army. And we focused a lot into that. And actually, we're hoping to do a part two on uh, General Wolfe anytime soon. But I learned a lot from uh, Robbie's Osprey book. And they're talking about their, the, how this came about. And actually, they were forming small battalions of light infantry there, as well as famous units like Robert's Rangers that people might have heard of. People starting to wear green and actually some of them wearing brown and both trousers and jackets, different hats that were more practical, cutting uniforms differently and using different units. They also raised a, like a small carder of riflemen under Major Ferguson. So we actually started to see riflemen in the British Army back in the American Revolutionary War, very rarely shouted about. They were actually wearing red and then they were light infantry and wearing uh, brown especially. But what we have is quite a gap between the American Revolutionary War and um, the Napoleonic Wars as we know them. And in that time, people started to forget. They actually disbanded most of these ragtag units. They were formed for the war service. And the only thing that was left, was like Zach was saying, was the light company. So 10 companies in a battalion. One of them is light company, thought of to be the quickest, the, the fastest, the, the smartest in theory. Uh, and then the grenadiers thought of being the tallest, the strongest men. So that's roughly how it is. And then the other eight, kind of the ordinary, uh, inverted commas, the ordinary line companies. So that's where how it's meant to work. And so only really most of the light doctrine stayed there, except for in a handful of units, most of which tend to be foreign units in the British Army, like say, like the German units. But the, we started to forget most of this technology. Uh, there's a handful of officers who in that Revolutionary War would have been very junior, and they were key to kind of remembering where we've come to. And some of those names will come out, but especially people who you might have heard of, like Sir John Moore, uh, and they were in that early service. Yeah, I'm glad you picked up the point about the uniform colour, uh, because what folks perhaps aren't aware of is that, unless they know about the red coats in particular, is that during this period, the idea behind the uniform was that it was meant to stand out. It was meant to be imposing so that you knew who your guys were, in effect. Um, so to change to green from the traditional red or to change to brown 
was quite a significant move. And it's the start of, and it's only the very kind of earliest glimmers that we see of it, but it's the start of a transition towards modern combat um, fatigues that are quite obviously camouflaged. But the point is that if you're wearing green, clearly you're going to be harder to see in a field. Now, that doesn't work perfectly because actually you've got um, gunpowder during this period, which creates a massive puff of smoke. So you can absolutely see when somebody's fired at you, but it does help a little bit with that element of disguise. So the rifle, how does it work? Well, the rifles, this, this is part of why everybody loves the, the almost sort of the sexiness of the 95th rifles, because they've got this new weapon and it's a better weapon. Um, because let's face it, guns during this period were not particularly accurate, were they? The tower musket had an effective range. And by effective range, I mean that you could hit what you were aiming at of about 80 yards. Call it 80 paces. Now, the rifle was lethal at 300 yards. Now, there's a caveat to all of this, which is that if you're aiming at a big shape, like a big enemy formation, actually the odds are you will hit that formation at a much further distance, perhaps even as much as 500 yards. But the point is in terms of precision fire, the rifles were far, far effective. So the Enzel Baker, the, who designs the Baker rifle, is by no means the only person designing rifles during this period, but he's the one who gets the commission from the British government to produce his weapon in large enough quantities that it can be used to equip what initially is an experimental core. So that's where it really comes in. Uh, we've actually already got the 5th, 60th using uh, rifles in green. Uh, they're actually green jackets with red facing, so it's quite bright red. And so they set up this new unit, the Experimental Corps of Riflemen. Uh, it's formed from a couple of different select battalions across the army, and most of them are written to, and they're asked to provide uh, a captain, a lieutenant, an ensign, which is equivalent to a second lieutenant today, two sergeants, two corporals, and about 30 men. Uh, and they're meant to be handpicked. They were, it's only ever meant to be temporary, and this is purely an experiment. Think of it like a project working group or a police task force. They're going to go away, do a job, and then come back later. And so they're asked to send basically their best men. Uh, and that's just the basis of the beginning of the Experimental Corps of Riflemen. Uh, Azil Baker, he's got his Baker rifle, uh, then not called that, but we're going to call it that uh, today. And uh, yeah, it's got these grooves, it's got slow spin, really slow spin. It does not making the ball turn like it's coming out of uh, a tennis like ball machine. It's, it's got a really slow and it's just keeping it accurate. But actually what they are experimenting with is can a British soldier both use the weapon and the light infantry tactics successfully at the same time. And there's a slight theory that actually maybe our continental cousins are going to be just naturally better at it. And it's quite interesting to find that during these trials, they actually ask for more Irish soldiers within the experimental Corps of riflemen because they think the Irish are better suited for it. So actually quite early on, uh, we end up with quite a strong Irish flavour within the 95th Rifles which you know, might, might be an inspiration for uh, Sergeant Patrick Harper, or it could just be coincidence because there were so many um, of our Irish friends uh, within the British Army at the time. So that's where we kind of get to. They're formed into companies. Uh, they're under the overall umbrella of General Coote Manningham, who's the regimental colonel. And then there's a commanding officer, Colonel Stewart. Um, just to give you a bit of a a background, a regimental colonel decides things like dress and doctrine and champions them at a higher level. 
Coot Manningham's a really interesting uh, character. In fact, I just found out his uh, grave is very close to me at work. And so I made a little pilgrimage there the other day, which was nice to do. And what they start to do with them is dress them in green. And they do quite weird things as well. Uh, they don't just train them. They start to think of them as individuals, which for the British Army at the time is quite extraordinary. They actually build them a library for the private soldiers to encourage them to read and to learn. They give them lectures. They give them a schoolhouse and teaching. And they do something which is very unusual. If you've heard some of our earlier podcasts about uh, the structure of the British Army and what it means to be a soldier and officer, this one might be a bit more of a shock. They encourage the men to get to know the soldiers. The soldiers get to know the men. They actually give prizes for the fastest men. And they especially give prizes with money for the best shots. So marksmanship, the, the principles of a rifleman come really ingrained into them. There's certain points where they actually can get wear a badge on their hats if they're a first and second class shot, so they're better. They can do a tighter rifle grouping. Shooting's all about how closely together you can make your targets fall uh, on the target because actually that's showing consistency. So that's what you're trying to do, make it consistent on a target board. And so they're getting that. And there's points, actually, they parade them within their first, second and third class shots. So they're actually kind of highlighting, you know, you think today the SWATs of the class, well, actually, you all get to stand at the front. Don't you all look good? And you get a nice little badge. Sounds like Will from the Inbetweeners. Um, but they're also getting pay uh, on top of that. So there's a real incentive to actually be better and be a better shot. And that's what it's all about. They do long times away. They call it a camp. A uh, long time away in the woods and forests where they uh, they skirmish. And this is in 1800. It's not long into that they get their first expedition overseas. Yeah, I, let me just come in with a slight caveat, because you are right. The, the rifles are part of this kind of pioneering of a new trend in how do you treat a soldier? And is there a better way of engaging with your men? And what you say about that interaction is absolutely true. And it's something that Wellington... A decade later is lambasting many of his officers for in the sense that they're not doing the basics they're not doing the basic duty of making sure that they are um, in the right um, bivouacs and making sure they they have what they need so there's absolutely something there at the same time though this should be seen in the bigger context of other reforms that are going on in the army during this period and i've mentioned in the past about the duke of york and how he is heavily involved having presided over a bit of a shambles really in Flanders in the mid 1790s he comes back and this he's this guy's commander-in-chief of the army he then starts implement reform so he weeds out things like child officers people who've enlisted at the point of birth by their family you know they buy a commission and then by the time that they're 18 they have the seniority to be able to push their way up to colonelcies so it's part of a much bigger move um, but you are right in what you say. So their first time overseas, actually, is 1800 in August. So they're formed in January 1800. And by August, they're deploying overseas uh, relatively rapid. Again, they're actually still t officially detachments from their battalions. So three companies of them to go to North Spain and take part in an amphibious operation near Farol on the northwest coast of Spain. And they go ashore, they fight up through the sand dunes and onto these huge cliffs against Spanish troops. And they have the opening shots of this campaign and force the uh, Spanish back. Ultimately, it is a failure. Uh, and within a few days, they're back on board the ships and are pushed off. 
But that's not down to them. That's just down to uh, how the campaign is forced. It was always a bit of a kind of a test subject uh, of Spain. You know, Spanish are later our allies for lots of the, the Peninsula War. Um, you think of them as allies, but from this era, think of the Battle of Trafalgar. Uh, it is a French and Spanish fleet fighting against Nelson. So the, the Spanish uh, are in a kind of Catholic alliance uh, with France off and on, and are enemies in 1800. So they do go there. Uh, they go on overseas to the Mediterranean islands and then are formed back. Uh, by that time, they come back. The remaining companies, lots of them have been disbanded uh, from various records. Uh, we think some of the men managed to stay back in the UK, uh, back on the south coast. So they come back and they're based around Horsham in Sussex. Uh, and from there, actually, they start to bring in uh, more men from the militia and actually the Irish Fencibles, which are a home service uh, unit for Ireland. And they bring in more experienced men from here. And that's where they actually start to expand from the experimental corps rifles to briefly the rifle corps uh, before they then later gain their numerical uh, regimental number of the 95th rifle. So this is still in the experimental uh, phase. There's some really nice illustrations from this era uh, we'll share them online but we'll make sure they are available and i recommend people to google this if you ex google experimental core rifleman actually given this really nice like bowler hat with a feather you'll see them lying down doing what they call the orthodox or supine position which becomes famous as the plunkett shot uh, which on twitter is like my my cover photo because it's just fun to do at reenactment events and slightly scare the frenchies and as zach said looks sexy in front of the public uh, so we do lots of that kind of stuff and uh, they were still experimenting. They were still trying these different shots, these diff and they are literally writing the manual of how to fire this rifle because it's shorter, because it takes a long time to load. So they're trying to force it down the rifling. It's in a greased uh, patch, so it actually takes a lot of energy. They were initially issued with a short mallet to try to hammer down the ramrod, uh, but they found soldiers just could not be bothered with this and we're chucking them away so they actually prefer just to basically cut their hand ramming it down it makes it a really difficult weapon to load lying down but because it's a shorter barrel than a musket it's a really good weapon to fire lying down so there's this bit of this like give and take and then they're trying to work forward as pairs and they're going through all of this until as zach says in 1801 one of their first big engagements is actually on board ships yeah so they are in april 1801 um, they're involved in Nelson's fight at Copenhagen, which if folks are kind of wondering, where does that fit in? If you've ever heard the famous thing from Nelson, where he takes the telescope, puts it to his blind eye and says, I cannot see the signal, that's Copenhagen. It's actually the first of, of two trips that the British make to Copenhagen. Yeah, He's... we go back to Copenhagen in 1807 with with Wellington and Sharp and Sharp's Prey, one of my favourite books. We do, and then we basically bomb the Danes into submission. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. To force them to give us their navy. Because we don't want and... it to fall into yeah. French hands. It's... Copenhagen is such a beautiful city and we do flatten it. Um, we do. Yeah. We do. It's, I love it's... the Danes and I love Copenhagen, but... 
gets a bit awkward. <laughs> little bit awkward. I mean, it's, it's one of those dark things that we have to um, pay due diligence to. Um, and then in 1803, they get Sir John Moore, don't they? Because he's given command of the Kent coast. And in the process, he's involved with the training of the Rifle Brigade. And Moore is quite kind of a humanitarian individual when it comes to the training of officers. This is a guy who doesn't really believe in flogging at a time when, as you guys know, because I'm always boring you about it, the army is absolutely invested in the idea of flogging people if they do not do as as, as is expected of them. You must be a bit upset at Moore. You know, you like whipping chains and tying people up and flogging them in a battalion square, and he doesn't really go in for that. It's a bit more mundane. He doesn't. He's he's very kind of 20th century in, in his approaches um, and isn't into the whole kind of dungeon style, tie people up and whip them. Yes, go on then, mate. That was that was one of um, Steve Smith's, the History Hacks artist, brilliant ones of having you and Alina all tied up. Um, yes, yeah, so, so John Moore comes in and actually he takes two of the units with him and the 43rd and the 52nds and they be they become redesignated light infantry. They go from Horsham uh, in Sussex, one of the, the, you know, the original home of the rifles, and they then move down to the south coast, uh, down to Shorncliffe Barracks, uh, which is still in existence down the south coast. And uh, that's where they start to train as a group, or as we would call them, a brigade. And this is the formation of the first light brigade, where you have the 95th Rifles, the 43rd and the 52nd Light Infantry working together out into the little hills, around uh, Shorncliffe and start to really work not, not only in pairs of our manoeuvres, but in large screams. Can you send out the majority of three battalions of men and screen a large area? Can they live off the land? Are they, you know, how are they going to be choosing the grounds and away in camps? Well, they won't necessarily be living in tents. We want them to be right out into the hills as much as possible, but really trying to push. They always want the skirmishes to push forwards rather than just being reactionary which was a little bit more common with a light company because they want to be close to their parent units. Uh, they, you know, kind of like I think of it, umbilical cord, they actually have a signal, a whistle blast to bring them back into the main line. If you've got a whole battalion out, they can actually do slightly more interesting things where each company can take it in a turn rolling forwards. And so you can end up with an entire line um, going along. I think of it more of like a, a caterpillar. You know, as the body goes up, one company with the whole company can go forwards, company skirmish fire and then move back into the line. And as they're moving back, you hopefully have already got the next company out there and they're perfecting these drills. And this is where they start to get this reputation of the light brigade being cleverer um, than everyone else. I don't think it's smarter and like a book smart sense. What they're doing is allowing the men and the low-level commanders, and I think a lot of credit has to go to the junior officers and the company officers, in getting this kind of symbiotic relationship with them. Yeah, you say that, but Marx is pulling a face. I'm about to read to you a letter that Sir John Moore wrote to Sir David Dundas, who explained to folks who Dundas is. He's the boss of the army, in effect. Yeah. Yeah, so this is as high as it goes. This is written in in December 1803. The five companies of the 95th Rifles, sorry, the 95th Regiment, are a very active, stout body of men, perhaps the best, for service in the brigade. There is a good military spirit in the corps to do their duty and to distinguish themselves. A desire to form something quite different from the rest of the army without having sufficiently considered 
or previously determined in what the difference was to consist has prevented the regiment from being formed upon any one system. The eternal changes which have been made have occasioned inaccuracy in drill and uncertainty in movement. Lieutenant Colonel Beckwith is not an intelligent officer, nor is he calculated to command a light corps, nor are the other field officers that I have seen good exercising officers or experts with their men in the field. Thus, good materials have not been made the most of, but still there are some good officers in the 95th. The non-commissioned officers and men are intelligent, and it is a corps which will be useful and do its duty upon service. So not damning by any means, but not a ringing endorsement either. So I think there might be a reason for this. Uh, what I was finding in the initial formation, which is only 1800, uh, bear in mind, so only three years before this, is they overstaffed the regiment, the experimental corps, with officers, almost twice as many as they needed. The reason for being is they could then basically interview and keep their favourite, the best officers from that. So there might be an opportunity there when they're saying the field officers aren't great, but the NCOs, the non-commissioned officers, your sergeants, are very good. Actually, say so what we can do is get rid of a lot of these officers, send them back home to their units and to other units and get in some fresh blood, get in some more intelligent officers. So there might be a counter argument to that to say it's actually a very clever, really written document saying the regiment is good. The core is good of the regiment. Now we're back onto C-O-R-E, um, core. It's going to get confusing very quickly. Um, the core of the regiment's very good. The men, the NCOs, but the officers aren't really pulling their weight. So what we're going to do is get rid of the officers, which is, you know, slightly controversial. Say the officers are bad and the men are good. That goes against this kind of like snobbery the British Army has. So let's talk about their service record more broadly then, because everybody knows that they rise to fame, if you will, as a result of their service in the Iberian Peninsula, in the Peninsula War. And most of them are out there for a heck of a long time. So the first 95th goes out with the very earliest deployments. Uh, So they're from September to January 1809 which is the first campaign that liberates Portugal for the first time, uh, is then, Wellington is then superseded by Sir John Moore, and then has to run um, for the the Spanish port of Carinha because of other developments within the the peninsula. Um, We'll fill you in on the full details another time, but one thing I would say is that it's at that point that he has to pull back that Moore realises that this whole idea of don't flog at all really doesn't work and that sometimes you've got to use the lash to really make the men do as you want because the plundering starts even before things go catastrophically wrong. Um, So Moro's kind of philosophy is is kind of torn apart. I should also actually say that they they have been out to to South America, haven't they? Um, Which is, is that where we get the Plunkett incident? We get the first incident, yes, Plunkett's on a rooftop with one other uh, rifleman. shooting basically Spanish officers in the distance and it's thought as being quite ungainly. There's potentially an incident where someone tries to surrender and he shoots him too. Uh, But what I will say is it is noted that this famous rifleman, Thomas Plunkett, uh, is really noted as being a fantastic shot 
And there's always a lot of controversy around Plunkett uh, because he is a rogue in every sense of it all. Uh, but he is a really, really good marksman. This kind of like borderline sniper uh, legend that builds up around him uh, and it becomes a myth and a kind of this Herculean figure. But in the real life, he's a drunk and a rogue, but he's damn good with a rifle. Uh, but yeah, he's out in Buenos Aires um, sniping at Spanish officers. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. And then fast forward back to the Peninsula War, the, 90, the first 95th evacuates with the rest of the army at Carinia. Um, there's nothing they can do. The British Army wins the Battle of Carinia, but then... And that doesn't change anything. That just buys them the time for the embarkation. And then they're back out in July 1809. And that's uh, Corona campaign. That's where they really gain their name. Actually, during this retreat, the 95th Rifles really maintain order. And there's just this beautiful uh, painting by Beadle called the Rear Guard. And you see them and the Light Division under Black Bob Crawford, who's now the brigade commander, um, forming this rearguard in the snow. And they're dressed in rags around their feet they've lost shoes. And they're bloody cold and miserable. Actually, hats off here quickly that never get any praise. The camp followers, the women who are out there with them, um, they're following them along. And actually, they're carrying their men's packs because the men are so exhausted. And there's a case, actually, I think it's from the 95th, but I will check this. Uh, one of the wives gives birth by the side of the road picks up the baby in one arm, picks up her husband pack in the other, basically shoves him forwards on this retreat. And then they have to fight the Battle of Corinna. And in that whole episode is when we get Plunkett, who runs back, uh, shoots a French uh, junior general, and to prove it's not a fluke, when his aide uh, comes to him, because he's about 300 yards away, he then shoots the aide as well before running back. And uh, is chucked a coin for his efforts by one of the observing generals. There's a lot of debate over the distance. Some people try to say it's as little as 100 yards. Some people have claimed wild things as many as 800 yards, which is an obscenely long distance. But from one of some of the best knowledges of this uh, particular incident that I've um, found, battlefield guides and 95th rifles experts, it's safe to say 250, 350 yards, so quite a bit of distance. And certainly over that of a musket, which is why it was noted at the time. And that's where we get Thomas Plunkett, the famous Plunkett shot, firing this orthodox soup line, lying down position. And uh, not just one lucky shot, but he fires again and shoots the aid. And it is fantastic shooting, uh, really. Yeah, and it's a fair point that they do stay together during the retreat. But why do they stay together during the retreat? Because Black Bob Crawford 
it's a flogger and he's absolutely vicious and unrelenting in terms of his discipline which again just goes to show to more that actually sometimes you've got to resort to dirty and unpleasant methods to to do it now in fairness black bob kind of he he keeps that kind of focus on iron hard discipline all the way through um in fact when the rifles go back out and you'll correct me if i'm wrong on this i believe crawford goes out with them and he tries to march the rifles along with a few other units to talavera he can't quite get the army in time but he does this incredible feat of marching the unit something like 40 miles in two days is yeah they're a day late sadly but they actually they basically drop their packs they drop the wives and the baggage and so they just march with their like rations for a day and they just march fast uh it is a shame that they miss the battle actually and it's always a bit of a joke that it's one of the amazing feats because it's such an extraordinary let's let's almost say superhero effort with let's put it into perspective as well their shoes that they're wearing which is leather shoes with like a leather sole and a few hobnails and are bloody uncomfortable things for long distance spanish roads being infamously bad you know kind of flint jagged stones if you can even get to a road in the blistering uh, july heat of talavera and they're pushing themselves to get there knowing their friends are in need yeah black bob crawford he's, he's one of yours he's a he's a flogger um, and he, he kind of helps form that. They get the, the softly, softly intelligent approach of more at the beginning. And then when they're going into the first major campaigns, they get a nasty kind of, you know, black bob. That's when his black mood. He's got really bad mood temperature, temperaments. And it's known, uh, famous incident, that the men were trying to walk around puddles nothing upsets a general more so what he does is he marches the whole lot back so they all march through this puddle and he observes them all scowling and then he says any man gonna go around it he'll flog them there on the spot so not particularly nice man but uh without any sort of spoiler alerts he does die um in the great sieges and his men mourn his loss deeply uh from that absolutely the one thing i will say in Crawford's defense is it's not just the the rank and file that he's unrelenting to because i'm sure i remember seeing as you're talking about puddles and rivers and and so on i'm sure i remember reading recently um, an instance where uh, an officer makes one of his men carry him across a stream because he doesn't want to get his feet wet yes and and crawford sees this from the back and bellows i demand that you put that man down right now drop that officer right now and the the soldier does exactly what he's told because he's got an officer bellowing at him. He's got no choice. He literally just dunks this officer wholesale into the deepest part of the river. And Crawford bellows at the officer, you will walk back and then you will walk across this river and I will not have you um, being carried by, uh, by your own men. So he's, he's like that with everybody. He just doesn't suffer fools at all. To be fair, that would be a fantastic scene in Sharp. I can see that with all the baggage and the snobbish officers, or even the you know the epic 1970 film Waterloo with the pig in the backpack. And I can just cut. It would have been a fantastic scene to actually have included, even if they didn't write in uh, Black Bob Crawford. Even Wellington shouting that you shouldn't have officers being carried by the men through rivers uh, would have been quite an interesting one. Yes, uh, it's. I, I've heard that account, so I believe that to be uh, true. So. We've, we've got them to Talavera and to keep the momentum going with, with this story. Effectively, 
they're there throughout. You know, the 1st Battalion, 95th, and the elements of the other battalions are there throughout the conflict. They are, because even when most of the battalions have left Karuna, some of the men managed to make their way south uh, rather than going north and kind of bypass this whole thing. Some very interesting cases where some of the men are taken prisoner and they escape and head south. They are formed into two units of the two battalions of detachments. And these are these kind of conglomerate uh, units. They have got no colours. They draft officers over from other units, but they are formed. So two full battalions. They're quite large units. I think about 650 men a unit. Uh, and they try to give them regimental identity. They try to split like the Highlanders and the rifles into the first ones. Uh, so they certainly are there. They actually form a full company of 95th rifles. I think there's about um, 80 of them there. And they, they fight during the Porto campaign at Grigio. They're the first skirmishers into the field. Uh, and they push up onto the French left flank. And we, they were present, but they didn't cross the river in, in Porto. So they're actually there, even though their battalions aren't. There are 95th riflemen uh, in these battles. And then they are in turn at Talavera, which is actually one of the real inspirations for the South Essex. You famously get um, Wellesley, and just as he's going to become Wellington, saying that he's going to form the South Essex as a battalion of detachments to fetch and carry. Now, the battalion of detachments didn't fetch and carry, they fought. Um, but that's where the name kind of comes from. Bernard Cormac very cleverly builds it in, and it comes from the battalion detachments who fight in the Porto and the Talavera campaign. So they're there, and that's why I quite like about Sharp. The history, of, he says it isn't right, but it's, it's a golden little thread that nods to the real history. So um, there certainly were would have been riflemen around the Porto bit as well as at Talavera, even though there's no, there's no eagle taken at Talavera. If only I knew somebody who was writing a book about Porto. Everybody drank. Marcus is doing it. <laughs> um, but yes, back to the story of the 95th. So they, as I say, they're there throughout, all the way to June 1814, and they're formed into the Light Division, and they are joined for much of it by their colleagues in the 2nd and 3rd Battalions of the 95th. So the 2nd 95th goes out as a battalion from September to January, along with the 1st Battalion, and then detachments are there from September 1810, so a bit later, admittedly, until September 1813, at which point the full battalion is present until the end of the war in June. Third, 95th, again, you've got detachments. They arrive in October 1810, slightly later. And then in September 1810, the full battalion joins them and again is there throughout. So the 95th absolutely were there for a huge proportion of the Peninsula War, and they absolutely deserve the battle honours that they gain in the process. They're also one of the few units that at the end of the war, when they're in the south of France, get on some boats, go over, fight the controversial battle of New Orleans. Did Britain win? Did it lose? I lost. But it's, not, it's a fantastic battle uh, where Ned Packenham, um, the Duke of Wellington's brother-in-law, is sadly killed uh, leading on the fights. They actually then get back on a boat heading back to Portsmouth before they even get to Portsmouth, hear that Boney's landed, land in Brussels. From Brussels, they, uh, when they hear the famous, he's humbug me by God, and uh, Napoleon, uh, Napoleon's on the, uh, on the road to Brussels, march. And the first casualty of the campaign is a soldier from the 95th who dies of heat exhaustion uh, during the uh, June campaign. He marches all the way from Brussels to Captain Brat and dies of heat exhaustion. They're marching so fast. Um, and then they fight the Battle of Waterloo. So the 95th Rifles, not only do they get um, that honour, they go forwards, backwards to America and back. 
the first yeah, someone might have, someone might have died in actual fighting as well but the nice yeah i mean i'm, ju- I'm just i'm just gonna say the first british casualty <laughs> perhaps i'd let you have that but not the first casualty of the waterloo campaign itself because day one you've got um yeah yeah exactly the the prussians are defending the the border and then the saxon weimar brigade holds off the the french at catchabra on i feel like we might come back to waterloo luck i feel like we might yes yes but just before our international friends start getting angry with you about saying it's all about the british other people died before that guy so back to peninsula war for a, a moment You've got the 95th. Yes, they're part of the light division. But again, we come back to this thing that I'm going to keep banging on about throughout this episode, that it's not just about the 95th. What? They form the core. Marcus is, is perplexed by this concept. They form the core of the light division. But I want our listeners to think for a minute, how many of these have they heard of? Because I'm going to name the other battalions of the light division. 5th Battalion, 60th Regiment. Now, you've heard that already today because Marcus has mentioned it. But did you know about that before you listened to this episode? In many cases, perhaps not. What about the 1st Battalion 45th? Now, both 5th 60th and 1st 45th were there for every single month of the Peninsula War, so longer than the 95th were out there. 2nd Battalion 31st, also a light division uh, battalion, was there for all bar two months of the conflict. 1st Battalion 3rd Regiment, was also in the light division so it goes to exactly it goes to emphasize that it's not just the 95th who are crucial and the point is that the 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 light division and the 95th have become synonymous people think about the 95th or sorry people think about the light division and they think bob crawford and the 95th rifles but the point is that you've got other units that are just as worthy that are serving in fact, 560th, I think, is, is broken into a series of detachments. So they're not just in the light division. They're, they're scattered across all Correct. the divisions. They're, they're, they're everywhere, actually. Yeah. They are work, they, that is something about the 560th. They are everywhere because they're detachments. They're in, well, I think, every battle apart from about one um, because they're so scattered out there. And this, you know, people might listen to this and think, well, why have we got this perception then? And it's saying, effectively, it's about pretty incredible PR. We've mentioned already about the kind of the sexiness of the rifle officer because, or, or the rifleman, because he's got this experimental, um, this experimental or this new type of weapon, and Marcus is enjoying the idea of him being. Well, you're sexy, just being very, very flattering. A little so bit much. too much. A little bit too much of a smug face there, mate. Um, but the the rifles also look impressive in terms of their uniform, which helps massively. The officers have this beautiful police. They're decked out in green, plenty of piping across the front of their um, jackets. And even Rifleman Harris, who has to go off on an errand um, and is accompanied by a couple of his officers, he marks down in his memoir the fact that he remembers going off on this, um, being given this task, and he notices that the officers are getting the eyes of the local ladies because of how kind of great this uniform looks. And that is then perpetuated by the fact that a lot of the early accounts that we know about, and there are many accounts from this conflict, but a lot of the early accounts that were mainstream came from 95th men and officers. So Edward Costello is a very famous one. Rifleman Harris. Now, Rifleman Harris doesn't actually appear in Sharp, but 
there is somebody called Rifleman Harris. Um, Benjamin Harris, Dorset boy. Uh, he's, you know, he's a part-time cobbler and, and shepherd uh, from outside Blandford. And he, he's illiterate, uh, it's worth noting. But he's one of his officers bumps into him well after the war and thinks he had an interesting story. I wrote that down. That's one of the most famous ones, uh, along with uh, Costello. And uh, well, quite a few others, actually. They, they, oh, yeah. they get that early, they kind of foot in the door first, aren't they? Yeah. Um, and I think that's probably why they're then picked up uh, by uh, Bernard Cornwell, but also by the famous uh, book Death of the French, a.k.a. Rifleman Dodd. And so they get a standalone uh, book uh, about a rifleman who does, he gets separated from his unit, but he does go off into the hills and perform SAS-style raids onto the French. And that inspires a lot more generations as it comes now, Zach is shaking his head. I mean, I'm just going to say right now, if you're going to call 95th Rifle flexy and cool, then I'm going to take it. But you're shaking your head at this kind of overall PR, the 95th Rifle's taking quite a lot of the limelight. Yeah, you're absolutely right. They, they completely do. I mean, if you think about the officers as well, George Simmons, um, Jonathan Leach, Harry Smith, um, mm. who famously marries Joanna Smith and Lady Smith out in South Africa is, is named after her. Um, there are so, Kincaid as well, uh, John Kincaid, there are so many memoirs from these guys. That, as you say, they always kind of get their, their perception in first. And that becomes very dominant because when people are trying to write the history of this period, it's very easy to get hold of this material about the 95th. And so that dominates the discussion. And I just think it's worth saying to listeners, you know, these uh, items are out there. They've been in circulation for 150, 200 years pushing. Uh, so Rifman Harris, Kincaid, Costello, um, Harry Smith, they're out there. Normally they're available off very low cost. I think some of the Kindle versions, the ones that are out there for 49.99p um, with your great British pounds or probably even in less with euros and foreign currency. So I strongly recommend people get hold of things like Harris, Costello and Kincaid. Sometimes they're actually put together as a little anthology and they're still actually quite dirt cheap. Um, and you can buy them from little independent publishers and things like that in second hand. And they're a really good read. Um, there's written of their times. They use quite funny language and there are actually some good bits of soldier humour uh, elbowed uh, into them. Uh, you've got to think who they're writing for. Some of them wanted to be famous and then people like Harris, not so much at all. Uh, it's quite an honest uh, series of accounts and we will have referenced it a few times so far in the series and I think we'll reference it a few times again. Uh, but I recommend to people that they go and find these accounts because they don't cost very much money. And there's normally a few secondhand copies. I've got, I've got three copies of Harris. I don't even know why uh, kicking around. Uh, I think I just bought them by mistake. Um, and they're, they're just a really easy read and they will give you a really good insight into the 95th. Uh, and you'll find there's a lot more reading material if you want to read about private soldiers and junior officers in the 95th than there normally are in one individual regiment for other units. Absolutely. And also, you know, in many cases, you've got more accounts coming from the 95th from the Peninsula War than you have for entire armies in previous conflicts. This is a time when literacy was just starting to become that little bit more mainstream. There's also huge public demand. So there's a market for these things. And as Marcus says, if you get the opportunity, just Google Costello, you'd be able to pick it up, find it very easily. C-O-S-T-E-L-L-O, Adventures of Rifleman Edward Costello. Um, and these accounts, they are absolutely compelling. They are such good reads. They really suck you in. And it was a really kind of formative part of my own interest mm. in this period, that it was the stories of these individuals and the way in which they coped with the conflict that made me so interested in 
in studying this period. So they're great reads. And I haven't got any issue with the idea that they are perfectly entitled to put their, their accounts out there. But as we've seen in recent years with the work of people like Gareth Glover, there's a whole wealth of other material out there that people that has only come to, to light recently and that people tend to neglect because there's that tendency to focus on the obvious, easily available accounts from the 95th because of the popularity. And it kind of becomes this self-fulfilling um, self-fulfilling entity. So yeah, the 95th, they're out there. They're well known uh, from both the contemporary period and you know the modern era and everything in between. It's what inspired a lot of people like Bernard Cornwall to write about them. A lot of people to actually join the army. Um, the rifles today take a long part of their heritage and their traditions from that. People who want to become reenactors, like I say, you know, I chose the 95th Rifles because I think they their uniforms look good and the history's there. You've heard of these accounts, the third 95th famous unit. That's who inspired me. So, you know, come and give that a go. Uh, but also it gives you that brilliant toehold of, oh, yeah, I might have heard of Sharp. Yeah, he's in the 95th Rifles. Or, yeah, that Death of the French. Or I've read Rifleman Harris. Yeah, that's really interesting. And that's kind of the gateway drug into Napoleonic warfare and especially Peninsula War, that hard core crack cocaine uh, that we'd like to smack up a vein of is so addictive once you get into actually the deep culture of the peninsula war there's so much more to it than the 95th but in your words it is kind of sexy and glamorous over in dark green see i thought you were into injecting gin rather than um rifleman green dye um, i i suck gin sir i don't waste it um, that should be so, that was, so we're in agreement the 95th rifles are all heroes sexy beasts turn the eye of the ladies and winning every battle correct so thank you very much and no, next month we're doing something different no 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 no, oh. no not quite done and and i'll tell you why because back when um i first kind of dropped this the 95th weren't quite everything we cracked them up to be bombshell I was on with Sean Bean on the, the very first Sharks Reunion. Right, Excuse me, whilst I, I drop that uh, name shamelessly on the floor. Um, not that Marcus is even remotely jealous that I, uh, I was given the, the opportunity to be in the room with him. Um, <laughs> not looking quite so smug now. <laughs> um, but I turned around and I said, look, the 95th are great, but they aren't hugely better in terms of their um stats when you look at things like desertion when you look at things like crime than a lot of the other regiments and i don't hold that against them but it's an important counter argument to make that actually as i said at the beginning if you want to put the 95th on a pedestal be my guest but also make sure there's space for the other units let me give you some examples on desertion so first battalion 95th rifles um had a very what is that i will admit from the start a very low desertion average, okay? 1.2 deserters per month. Now that's not to say that half an individual kind of ran away. That's just that if you divide the numbers up, you end up with 1.2 per month. Now, the British army as a whole does not have a bad desertion problem during this period at any point. Um, so you've got 1.2 per month for, for the 95th. Let's play a game actually, Marcus, between you, me and the listeners. So I will read um, a battalion, and you've got to give me your estimate of whether or not they're higher or lower 
than the 95th. Oh, it's like Bruce Forsyth. I'm well up for this. It absolutely is. I'll take people back. So the 5th Battalion, 60th. Lower. Wrong. Higher. 6.2 deserters per month on average. The reason for that is that, as we said earlier, they are detached. So the the, the unity within the, the regiment is is dissipated because they are just individual companies within lots of different disparate brigades and divisions. So they're not so getting that oversight of individual commanders, and so they're buggering exactly. off. Exactly. So another rifle regiment, far worse, but for a very significant reason. How about this one? Higher or lower, 1st Battalion 88, the Connacht Rangers, who for listeners have a really bad reputation for being utter rogues. Uh, I think that's rogues who are, are rogues, if that makes sense. So I think lower. You're absolutely right. They are lower. And I've just realised that because I sent you my notes earlier, you've got the answers in front of you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not reading. I'm, play, I'm playing fair on this. I'm quite enjoying the game. Fair enough. You're absolutely right, but only fractionally. So 1.1. So it's not like there's a big difference between the two. So you start to see where this argument is coming from. Let's take some units that people perhaps really haven't heard of. So the 1st Battalion, 48th Regiment, higher or lower? Then the 88th. Uh, Then the 1st, 95th. Ah. Marginally higher? Nope. Much lower. I'm proving I'm definitely not using the cheat sheet here. Yeah, you absolutely are. Uh, 0.3 deserters a month. Let's let's speed it up a little bit. 1st Battalion, 45th. Higher or lower than the 1st, 95th? It's going to be really similar because they're both there in the light division. Uh, lower. You were on it when you said it's going to be really similar. It's exactly the same. 1.2 okay. a month. And then 1st Battalion, 40th. Slightly higher. Just gut instinct. Lower. Much lower. The lowest of all. 0.2 deserters a month. So you can see and, what and I'm then saying we about... Out, and you haven't included the column for the Chasseurs Britanniques. Yeah, French soldiers is... who started to recruit mostly Germans and uh, French prisoners of war, and they would be huge numbers. Um, I think it's something like ten point four a month, something like that. Yeah, it's it's huge. Um, so yeah, but what you you can see what I'm saying about how all regiments actually are equally worthy when it comes to a pretty fundamental aspect of group morale and cohesion of desertion. And then we get to the issue of crimes. And the point is that there's nothing wrong. Well, well there is something wrong with what the, the 95th are, are doing because they're being, they're being tried for things like absence and drunkenness and theft. Um, those, are, those are the main ones. But there's an important point here, which is that they're all exactly the same crimes that other regiments are trying their men for. And so it's not like the 95th are actually doing any better really on the discipline front perhaps slightly better than for example the Connacht Rangers but there are issues with consistency of available records they're not hugely better in terms of what they're doing or or doing when they're misbehaving than other regiments so great 95th very um dependable soldiers in battle but how many other regiments broke in conditions when the 95th wouldn't have broken i wouldn't have thought that there were many i can't even think of many battalions that did break 
um, over the course of the Peninsula War. There weren't many of them because generally all of the units fought well. In terms of desertions, they are slap bang in the middle. In terms of crime, they're doing exactly the same as the others. So honour them by all means. Absolutely respect their sacrifice, but respect the sacrifice of others too. And I think that's where it comes down to. Um, we highlight the 95th kind of as the gateway, again, the, the latching point of the history. Uh, but actually, are we doing disservice by not like mentioning the other regiments? Possibly. But by remembering the 95th, at least we're remembering the service of our 4th other regiments who were out in the peninsula and the Napoleonic Wars rather than ignoring the era you know, as a whole. Um, so I'd much prefer people to hark on about the 95th as Sean Bean as Sharp and Bernard Cornwell's books, Rifleman Dodd and they've read Harris, then they've never heard of the Peninsula War. They don't know who the Duke of Wellington is. They think Waterloo is a station, not a battle. And Wellington is a boots, not our greatest general ever. And that's why I like them because it's very easy to reel people in with a little bit of pop culture. Come and, come and bite my Sean Bean Sharp. Right, got you. Now let's do some history. Um, and that's where I think it kind of comes down to. Uh, you can get really passionate about the 95th Rifles because you then start to go, well, did you, did you know about the Corps Rangers? Did you know that they were charging down the streets of Fretus de Unero, screaming in Gaelic, scaring the bejeebus out of the Frenchmen? No? Oh, it's a brilliant story. Come with me. Uh, and that's what it's all about, really. Yeah, that is a completely fair counter-argument. Um, I, I would not argue with that for a second. Um, I, I agree, I'd much rather... I mean, look, I found my route into this period through the Sharp novels, ultimately. Um, but I think it is important that people go beyond Sharp and go beyond the 95th and see the much bigger reality. I'm interested in what you say there about, you know, you kind of using that to make them aware of, say, the 1st 88th and other units. How do other reenactment regiments feel about the attention that the 95th get? So it kind of splits people. Um, they're either deeply jealous uh, because they don't have books and TVs and films, um, or they try to ignore it and think it's all potential garble. But I, I think they're secretly jealous. Um, I will admit, I've said to friends and uh and reenactors alike well you know why would you not wear dark green and they genuinely think that red looks smarter and i i get the argument they want to stand in line and fire volleys and you know it's, it's a really you know with the colors blazing like the sun overhead uh pipes and bagpipes and drums and that's great too um and that's certainly you know going to be the mainstay of a british army your skirmishes are slightly unusual and i've got a soft spot for the units of the uh the light infantry variety, you know, your light company of the buffs, your 68th Durham's and so many more, uh, the Highland light infantry, so many more uh, in between. I've got a soft spot for, uh, because they've got this kind of uh, foot in each camp of a line regiment and light infantry and red and uh, dark green all kind of thrown into the mix. And there's other units, you know, uh, out there, the Chasseurs Britannique, I keep going about, there's a relatively new reenactment group based in France for French people betraying a unit that fought with Britain. And then in Britain, uh, you have lots of reenactors who want to play the French line units. We even have a Napoleon. I mean, who wants to dress up as the bad guy at the weekends? Some of them. It's great. 
uh, it's all part of it and it's definitely all part of the joke uh, and we, it's a lot of camaraderie and most importantly for the context of this it's about going out and engaging uh, with the public reenactment has a really bad rap and I thought of that until I went and tried it and so oh, that's my kind of a bit of a plug there but genuinely it's a lot of people like-minded people who you know, might like sharp might like history or just want to do something a bit different um, but there's certainly a little underflow of history and once that bug gets you for history you can find it really addictive and people can spend a lot of time researching stuff and I just welcome that I think it's worth you know shouting out um, to this podcast because I know they listen um, are my friends over in Canada who have taken their passion for history and reenactment and then made it into lecture series uh, both online over the last year but they actually do them in person in Canada for the war of 1812 and so they're educating uh, the public and you know the Canadian people um, and the Americans too about a war that's not as widely known as other conflicts and that's great that we can highlight history through living history uh, and a hobby uh, we all have hobbies and some just happen to be you know with black powder loud smelly things and uh, a bit of drinking and socializing at the end of it but to me it's about it's about history really so are the loud smelly things the reenactors or the the guns themselves oh definitely the reenactors we, we've got weapons too but the loud smelly things are definitely the reenactors a hundred percent so do you feel that you've successfully defended the 95th honor tonight i think so you know, first in the job. field, last out. They're still going to be the most famous. They've still got the accounts. Um, but like we were saying, they've got these famous characters like um, Plunkett, uh, who went off and did fantastic things. And yet he was arrested for being drunk and disorderly. Uh, and that's all part of, you know, a rogue is a rogue, whether he's lovable or not. And the British soldier has always been that rogue, because he probably joined the army to get out of trouble. He might have got... Um, they're one of the local you know village girls slightly in the family way and he needs to get overseas is not a common uh situation uh so you know this this happened a lot uh but they look good in uniform and tommy this tommy that you know tommy plunkett he's called upon when he's needed thin red line of heroes just sometimes they're a dark green hero too all right then what are we doing next time we're going to it will be June next time. What folks perhaps might not realise is that we'll now be in the midst of campaign season. So what we're going to do for the next few... The snows is... are melting, the troops are marching. Absolutely. We're going to take you through some of the big victories of the Peninsula War and perhaps even beyond over the course of the next few weeks. So next month marks the anniversary of the Battle of Victoria, one of the last great battles um, of the Peninsula War, but also the crucial battle in evicting the French once and for all from Spain. So we will take you through that next time. Beyond that, in July, we have the anniversary of the Battle of Salamanca, one of my personal favourites, one of the great victories in all of military history, it doesn't just relate to the Peninsula War. Um, and beyond that, we've got um, Asai, we've got Basako. there's loads for us to, to delve into for you. It's, it gets into really rich pickings. Um, I'm really pleased that Zach and I have chosen to do a Victoria and Salamanca first, 
because anyone who knows uh, myself from my social media, I've got a passion, which is telling people that Wellington was not a defensive general. He goes on the attack. He uses opportunity. And uh, we get mixture of both of those in the next two episodes. So what we're going to do is a little bit more narrative. Uh, it's going to be slightly different structure. And after we do some big battles, we're going to start to pick some slightly different areas for that are me barely mentioned in the books. And we're going to really indulge your history. And hopefully we've drawn you in by then. And we're going to talk about the foreign regiments, of the British Army, people like the Chasseurs, Britannique, the 5th, 60th Rifles, uh, Brunswickers, and we're going to start to highlight them and different elements around uh, the British Army, as well as these great battles. Uh, we're go doing all of that uh, in June, July, August, and then that should take us on into the winter. And by that time, we might even be back down to May this time next year, so I can then start talking about uh, Porto, Zach, isn't it, in May? I, I wouldn't know, but I do know this guy who's writing a book about it. Um, can't think what their name is now, right now, though. Sure, it I do be believe this episode, this episode is coming out on the 13th and 14th of May, and the anniversary of the Battle of Porto is the 12th of May, 1809. So anyone uh, listening uh, should quickly go and grab a glass of port and uh, toast the liberation of Portugal by uh, Mar from Marshal Salt by our good boy uh, Wellesley and uh, the men of his army. So, with Marcus having shamelessly publicised his own work there, thanks very much for listening. We will see you next month. And until then, stay sharp. Stay sharp, folks. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.